Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 22, actually. In the bottom there, our sermon series is called Acts Spirit-Empowered Mission. Acts chapter 22 and 23, we'll be looking at their Bibles in the back. Um, I'm going to dismiss the kids. Kids, you can go to the age-appropriate class as we teach the same thing here as we do there. Christ has died, Christ has risen. Amen? Christ will come again. We're in Acts chapter 22. Turn there with me, please. We have four more sermons in the series. Uh, We'll finish up toward the end of uh, November as we launch into our Christmas series called The Canticles of Christmas. Canticles of Latin for for the word uh, for a hymn or song. Um, We'll be looking at four, well actually five, canticles of or songs of Christmas. The Song of Mary in Luke 1. The song of Zechariah again in Luke one, and then we'll go to Luke two and look at the song and the the the, uh, the 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 hymn of the angels, and then Simeon again in Luke chapter two. So Luke one and two, and then Christmas Eve right here we'll have our celebration um, and celebrate the fifth canticles of Christmas. We'll look at Philippians chapter two. Many many people and many theologians believe that was a song that was sung, and Paul took that um, in chapter two and put it in a letter to the Philippian church. So that's where we're headed. After Christmas, we're going to be launching into a new series, book series. Um, we're, we're almost ready to make that announcement. We're, not, we're going to make that decision this week. So pray for me. Pray for the other leaders and pastors as we look to uh, launch a next book study uh, that will bring us into the summer series. And hopefully in September, Lord willing, um, we will be in the gospel according to John. Getting very excited about that come September. So that's kind of where we're headed. So we are... In Acts 22 at the end, and things, let me bring everybody up to speed, things are, beginning, things are getting very hard, rapidly changing for the Apostle Paul. It's been about, about 25 years since his conversion, maybe about 15 years after he began his first missionary trip through Asia Minor. Um, but now he's a prisoner of Rome, and he will remain a prisoner until the end of the book, um, Acts uh, 28. And if you remember last week, Paul has been arrested while in the temple, uh, fulfilling his vow that he made uh, to, to God, but uh, an agreement that he made with James and the other brothers at the Jerusalem church that he would purify himself. And while he was at the temple, some Jews from Asia Minor, probably from Ephesus, probably Ephesus, probably uh, were, were, were the ones that were causing the stir in this crowd. And they brought two false charges against Paul, if you remember last week. They were saying, number one, that he was teaching men everywhere against the Jewish people, against the ethnicity of the Jews themselves. He taught against the law, the very fabric of their theological foundation. And he was teaching against the temple, that, that place of devotion to their God. And the second charge against him was that Paul had brought a non-Jew, a Gentile, into the inner courts of the temple place where no Gentile was allowed to go. Both charges were trumped up. Both charges were not true, but they brought these against Paul. And as the crowd was getting out of hand, they dragged Paul out of the temple, closed the gate, and they started beating the living daylights out of the man. And the Roman authorities that were stationed in what is called the Antonia Fortress saw this, what was going on, and the tribune rushed in with the soldiers and rescued and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with chains. No surprise. The Holy Spirit already told Paul that through the, the prophet Abagus, Agabus that he would be in chains. So while standing on the step, Paul makes this motion to the crowd. We're not sure what he did. I don't think it was this, but it could have been. And everyone kind of just quieted down. And he, and he brings this defense, the, the apologia, this, this apologetic, this defense before the Jews. We read that last week. It was really more of a, of a testimony. The testimony of Paul and how he had been a persecutor of Christians and now he's a preacher of Christ and how he met the risen Lord on the road to Damascus and that changed everything for the Apostle Paul. And now he's about testifying to that truth. Jesus died, Jesus rose, and Jesus is coming back. I think it's a good reminder for us this morning that the gospel is not recommendation. It's not, it's not suggestions. The gospel is good news. It's a declaration of that truth, that Christ has died for sins. Christ has been buried. Christ has rose over sin, death, and hell. Christ has ascended. Christ will return. And therefore, Jesus has the ability, through the cross, to forgive you of your sins. 
for those who call upon his name. And then, and then Paul, at the end of his defense, uses the G word. You say, no, you didn't. Yes, he did. He said Gentiles. And the place goes nuts. The end of chapter 22. He's brought in by the tribune, and they lay him out to be flogged. A man by the name of Claudius Lysias is in charge. He's, he's the tribune. And then Paul says, well, wait a minute. Time out. I'm a Roman citizen. And since there are no real charges, since I've had no real due process, is it legal for you to, to flog a Roman citizen? The answer, of course, is no. The flogging stops because if the Roman had continued and Paul proved his citizenship, he would have been put to death. So that stops everything. And Paul's getting ready to be flogged as Jesus was flogged. And the royal tribune, uh, the, the, uh, this man by the name of uh, Cilicius, just, Lysias just stops. And that's exactly where we left off. Acts chapter 22, verse 30. Now, I, I, I want to spend more time looking at the first point than the other two, but I want to just lay out chapter 22, verse 30, through chapter 23 to the end of actually, uh, which is 35. So as we look at this narrative and we pull some principles from it, hopefully learn some truths and be encouraged by it, we'll see it under three different lenses. Paul's examination before the council, Paul's intervention, Paul's rescued, and then Paul's deportation, which means he is being deported from that area and, and, and rescued and brought to another place, actually to Caesarea. So most of our time will be in number one. So let's look at that because I think there's a lot of good stuff in here. Number one, chapter 22, verse 30, Paul's examination. It kind of sets the stage. Look what it says. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, that's the tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the councils to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So he's out of change, but he's still a prisoner. So Paul gets swished away. He spends the evening and the night in the Antonia uh, Fortress, a place where all the military was, to keep peace in Jerusalem. And he's brought before the council. The council is the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a body of, of Jewish believers, excuse me, Jewish men, religious leaders, um, made up of 70, 71, depends if you count the high priest or not. And it, they, were, they were like the governing body of Jerusalem. They were the judicial and administrative council of the Jews. They had the responsibility to interpret the law. If you had any questions, they had the responsibility to try people who have violated the law. And brought, that's why they brought Paul before this, the Sanhedrin. Now, this is at least, according to Scripture, the sixth time that the testimony of Jesus Christ was proclaimed in the midst of this big, large, gathering, overseeing body of Jewish believers in Jerusalem. The first report came when Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. They said, who is this guy? He was dead, all the way dead. Now he's alive. Let's gather and talk about it. That was in John chapter 11. The second time, they gathered together because Jesus was on trial right before his crucifixion. The Sanhedrin got together and, and was, was pressing to have him killed. The third time was when Peter and John, if you remember in chapter 4, um, they're preaching the gospel and the Sanhedrin gets together and says, you need to knock that off and stop preaching the name of Jesus. The fifth time is in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 5, where they do some flogging and they bring all the 12 together and say, now give an account before the Sanhedrin. That's number five. Excuse me, number, yeah, that's, that's number four. The fifth time was Stephen. Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin to give a defense, and he tells them the gospel. They kill him. And now the sixth time we see right here that Paul is brought before this Sanhedrin, really a pre-Roman trial. So like I said, let the trial begin. It's going to continue. But this is kind of a, it is a trial before the Jews, but it's not a trial before the Roman authorities. This is, this is his examination. But you know, this is really sad because this is the last time we hear about the testimony of Christ before the Sanhedrin. The proclamation of Jesus and the declaration that he is the Messiah who has come to rescue us from our sin. And that's sad. There's going to come a day, folks, listen to me. There's going to come a day if you have not trusted Christ if you do not love him, if you've not trusted him, if you've not repented of your sin and believed on him, 
the work and the person of Jesus Christ, there's going to come a day when there'll be no more testimony for you. Let that sink in. Your opportunity will be gone. I implore you, don't let that happen. If you've never trusted Christ, today's the day. You may not have tomorrow. I may not have tomorrow. This is the last time they're going to hear it. Folks, respond today. If you have not trusted Christ. You may not have tomorrow. Verse 23, chapter 23, verse 1. He goes on. He says, and looking intently at the council. Paul's got, Paul's got a, a, an audience. And Paul says, brothers... I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. I don't think, I, yeah, I just put a little emphasis in there. I don't think he's like, God's going to strike you. you I don't think he did that. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? That's what it said. I, I, I don't know that to be, but I, that's what I think. Notice Paul begins by calling them brothers. Brothers, he's done that before. He's, he has shared with them, and he said, I identify with you. I understand. I am a Jew just like you. It's important to identify when you're proclaiming the gospel. He says, I've lived my life before God in all good conscious, up, conscious, conscious up to this day. That, don't take that to mean that Paul is perfect. That's not what he says. He's not committing, he's not saying that I've lived in perfection. In fact, our conscience is not our guide. Warren Worsby rightfully says, the conscience does not set the standard, it only applies it. You see, our conscience may be, may be compared to a mirror. As the moral standard of God, as God's law, as God's perfection shines and reflects, our conscience will be illuminated by that. And, and, and the more light, the more illumination, the brighter the path goes by God's word. But when the mirror becomes dim and dirty and, and musty and, and old and, and funky and with the, dim, the lights go out, God's, it's God's standard. The Bible talks about the conscience that is, that is so wicked and so much don't want to hear the light of God, don't want to hear the word of God, don't want to see the goodness of God, that their, their conscience is seared. They can't even tell what's right or wrong. That's a bad place to be. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 that his conscience was clear. He says, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. So what I think Paul is saying is, listen, you're not my judge. I'm not even my own judge. Before God, God is my judge. And my conscience is clear. Christ, the one I'm proclaiming, has given me and cleansed me. And my conscience is clear. No wonder the high priest who's thinking, well, if you're a Christian, you're preaching Christ, and you're preaching forgiveness, you're preaching Messiah, and now your conscience is clear. What does that make us? Crack across the mouth. That's what, that's what it got Paul. He got, he, got, he got hit. He got struck in the mouth. Now, I just want to point out a couple of things about witnessing, and I think Paul teaches us some things about how to witness about Christ and how to witness to others about Jesus. The first thing I want us to see in this passage, it's really, we talked about it last week, is that there are certain times in our life when we're sharing Christ with others, we're talking about Jesus, there's certain times that we need to assert our rights. Paul spoke up to the tribune. Uh, he was a Roman citizen. They stopped his flogging. Paul will actually assert his rights as a Roman citizen again in chapter 25 where he says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, and you know what? He gets a free ride to Rome. He was going, he might as well go on a free pass. And he gets a ride to, 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 see, to see Caesar, I appeal to Caesar, and off to Rome and goes. In fact, even though God has told him and promised him he will go, one of the ways is by asserting his rights. Some have said, you know, Paul had no right to do that. He should follow the command of Jesus who said, somebody strikes you in the cheek, turn the other one also. John Calvin said, the commands of Christ to turn the other cheek does not stop us from complaining about injuries we suffered and convicting ungodly of their guilt, provided we do so calmly and without ill will. A lot easier said than done. It's easy to write those words, right? Jesus did say, do not resist the evil one. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you or take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, Go with him two miles. So was it wrong to, for Paul to not, to, to, to assert his rights to speak when there was unjust, injustice? Even though God said, listen, you're going to have a lot of enemies. There's going to be a lot of persecution. I don't think so. 
I don't think Paul was sinful here, and I don't think Jesus' words mean that, that we are to lay down our lives so that others can just abuse us. I do not believe that's what Jesus was saying. Jesus is not teaching that you should never stop injustice, that no matter what somebody does to you, you should let them walk all over you. Just disregard justice. Micah says that we are to what? Love mercy, walk humbly with our God, and do justice, right? Well, not in that order, but walk humbly, do justice, uh, and, and, and love mercy. So we are to do justice. And, and Jesus' words about being slapped in the face had nothing to do with being beat up. It had everything to do with being insulted. That's where you strike in the face. It's an insult. Now there are times I think that we need to be quiet. Let things go. But there are times we assert our rights. And there are times that just go, you know what? This is really about my pride. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Because this is really about my ego that just got hurt. This is not about asserting my rights so that, so that Christ's honor, Christ will, you know, his, the, the, the church will move forward and the gospel will, will be declared. This is really about just, I, I just didn't like the way things were, were said. I, I don't like the way they made me feel. Here we see that there are times that we need to stand up and assert ourselves. And, and, and I think it's fair to say that Paul here is, 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 asserting his rights because they were trying to discredit him, discredit the gospel, attack him on what God was doing. And for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the mission, he asserts his rights. If and when we demand our rights and our justice, again, we do it for the honor of Christ, the good of, the good of, of our neighbors, the love of Jesus, our brothers and sisters, and to protect ourselves, I think, from abuse. But not out of revenge, not out of desire to get even or to assert just raw power over someone. There are times we need to think through. Do we assert our rights? Is this where we stand for justice? Is this where I just need to be quiet? It's more about my ego that I need to just move on. So there are times we need to stand up. But notice in our text, there's also times that we need to shut up. Verse 2. The high priest says, whoever's closest, crack Paul in the face. Now, we don't know how that happened. Did he wave his hand? Did he say, hit him? Did he say, get him? You know, is there some sort of mafia thing? We don't know. But we do know that Paul gets smacked. And look at verse 3. His response, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sitting in judgment of me? And yet you, you defy the judgment? You defy the law yourself and I'm struck? In other words, you're sitting there holding me in contempt. I have no charge against me. And then you go ahead and you violate the law. You're a whitewashed wall. Jesus talked about the whitewashed tomb. Same thing. On the outside, you look great with all your garb. That's wonderful. Inside, you're foul and you're dirty and you're evil. And that's what, that's what he's telling him. You're a hypocrite. Now, I'm not sure whether any of you have been struck in the mouth before. Usually, I get struck in the mouth because of my mouth. But, and, and if you grew up in any Italian home, if any of you have, you've got a backhand at least once, okay? So, he's angry. Josephus, who's a, who is a, jo, a Jewish historian, describes this high priest in that day in Jerusalem as one of the worst high priests they have ever had, known for his pro-Roman sentiments, extreme cruelty, quick-tempered, and greed. That, that's what Josephus says about this high priest. But he's got some backing. Okay, He's got some backing you see here in verse 4. In fact, he's going to get murdered According to antiquity, uh, he does get murdered, but right now he's got backing, verse 4. Those, it says, who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul says something which people debate. You can look up commentaries, you'll, you'll, you'll see there's a debate about this. He said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So some people say, you know what? Paul was being sarcastic. Actually, John Calvin, some of the other reforms. Paul was being sarcasm. I did not know you were a high priest. A high priest. Uh, they let anybody be a high priest, obviously. You know, one of those. <laughs> you know, you're acting like a bully, like you're some tough guy, like you're some mafia hit guy. I would have never known you were a high priest. Excuse me. Little sarcasm. I don't think so, although I, I think it's cute and that's a good possibility, but I, I don't think that's the case. I think, as what other people say, is that Paul's eyesight, we know from Galatians 2, excuse me, Galatians 4 and Galatians 6, was not very good. He wrote to them, I came to you preaching, but I had a bodily ailment. You would give me your eyes if you could. 
Galatians 6, he ends the letter with saying, I write this letter you see by my own hands with large letters. So I think most people think that Paul did have some problem with his eyesight. And then, just thinking out loud, have anybody ever seen the Ali Frazier fights? I know I'm showing my date, but those left jabs, those eyes, what, what did Frazier look like afterwards? His eyes were closed. That's what it was. So either Paul had bad eyesight or maybe he had bad eyesight, and when they beat the dog snot out of him two days earlier, who knows? I'm just thinking out loud. No one ever said that. I'm making it up. But it sounds plausible that his eyes were maybe busted up a little bit. I don't know. But I, I think that he didn't see. But look what he does. He, he quotes Exodus 22 right out of the law. You shall not speak of evil. Speak evil of a ruler of your people. So the question that people ask is, is Paul confessing his sins? Is he acknowledging that he did something wrong? Is he, is he backtracking just a little bit because he recognized he, at that point who he was speaking to and what he had said? Is that possible? Could it have been just sarcasm? Some people say, no, Paul just sinned. So yeah, he's backtracking. Paul spoke, he shouldn't have spoke. He realized he sinned. And we would say, well, that's possible. Moses, Abraham. In fact, every single person in your Bible but Jesus has sinned. So that wouldn't be a shock. I mean, others say, you know what? He's justified in his anger. Calling them whitewashed wall was justified because they are. Telling them, look, you follow the law, you're not really. So could he be justified? I mean, in Ephesians 4, he says, in your anger, do not sin. You guys discussed this at community groups this week. You know, what, what was going on? But one thing we will notice that Paul immediately gets control of his tongue and he admits that his words were disrespectful. So he may not respect the man, but he respects the office and he submits himself to the scripture. He immediately, immediately controls his tongue and speaks the word of God to them and to himself. He doesn't make excuses. He uses the word of God on himself. John Sanderson writes this. What impresses us about Paul in this instantaneous, instantaneous submission to the law of God, once he was made aware that the speaker who so unlawfully ordered him to be struck was the high priest with all the pressures flooding in upon him, the threat of the mob to be lynched, the feeling that he could not get a fair trial, and the injustice of the command to hit him, Paul had the presence of mind to recall the Exodus command. As Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and as soon as Paul heard the voice... Every faculty was called into obedience. That we can say about Paul, end quote. Sometimes things are brought to our attention when we speak without knowledge, whatever the reason is, it's okay to shut up. It's okay to say, I was wrong, my bad. Some people are afraid to step out in faith and talk about Jesus because they're afraid what they're going to say and they're going to be called under it. Or they're going to be shown possibly even that maybe they misspoke. Don't let, that, don't let that fear overcome you. Speak. It's okay to say, you know what? I was wrong. I'm going to check on that. I was wrong. Here, Paul is submitting to Scripture, admitting that he failed when the Bible says that he did. He's not like, you know what? I'm not budging an inch. I am not giving up. There's an air about sometimes. There's an air about us sometimes, I think. And, and if you think I'm wrong, that's okay. Where we are trying to always be Right? And, and, and because we're Christians, because we have the truth, and we do, that somehow if we admit we have failed, if somehow we admit that we were wrong, somehow that looks bad on God. And somehow that looks bad on the gospel. See, we should press forward in the gospel. That's true. But we're fallible people. And sometimes we need to stand up, and sometimes we need to shut up. And listen, God and everyone else knows. Listen. God and everyone else knows, and this includes me, our own sinful tendencies and the way we try to justify ourselves. So I say to you and I say to me, do ourselves a favor. Stop worrying about what others think or how your confession of wrongs looks to them or to God. Just shut up, admit you're wrong, and press on. My bad. You know what I mean? Sometimes we just need to do that. I think Paul does. He's like, okay, you got me. You know, we just need to press on. Pride will tell you if you acknowledge weakness, if you acknowledge wrong, if you, if you do all that, it, it, it's weak. You're, you're weak. But the scripture teaches us acknowledging wrong, confessing when you're wrong without making an excuse, is actually strength. It's called humility. And it's important because, folks, your righteousness is not how right you are. 
Your righteousness not come because you got all the right words. Your righteousness comes because Jesus Christ is righteous and he's got you covered. And any other, any other air about us, self-righteous, look what I've done, pat me on the back and all that stuff, really is about pride, it's not humility. Your righteousness is Christ and Christ alone. Sometimes we need to stand up, sometimes we need to shut up, and other times we need to slip out. I just thought that went with everything. Verse 6, Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the others were Pharisees. He cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, verse 8. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose. Some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel actually spoke to him? Verse 10. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces, commanded the officer to go down, take him away, take him from among them by force, and bring him into the barracks. Now, you got to read that. I, at least I do. I read that passage. I'm like, yo, that was slick. That was shrewd. That was some good tactic right there. He knew that the Sanhedrin was divided. You had the conservative Pharisees. You had the liberal Sadducees. And you know what? They're not always together. In the Bible, you read the, Fadduce, you know, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They came to, just because they're mentioned together. They were not friends. Okay, they were not friends. Sadducees were part of the ruling elite. They were, they were associated with the priesthood. They were collaborators with Rome. They were aristocrats. Pharisees, a little more popular among the people. They tried to live in pure, pure uh, moral purity. Right? It's sort of like getting into a room and you got people lynched you up and bring you in. You got the whole room divided between Democrats and Republicans. And you're like, huh? Hmm. Everyone should be drug tested on welfare. Get him! You know one side's going to say. Right? Or, 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 or something on the other side. You know, this healthcare system is great. Everyone is doing well. You get the other side. You're like, this is great. You guys kill each other and I'll leave. That's, what, that's, that's exactly what's happening here. So the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. They believed in it, not the res, a resurrection. They didn't believe Jesus rose, but they did believe in the end of the life, in the end of days, because the scripture teaches there'll be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. They believed that. They believed in angels. They believed in spirits. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in the whole Bible, the New Te- Old Testament, all the books. They believed in the infallibility of scripture. They believed that the Messiah was going to come. The Sadducees believed in no spirit, no supernatural, no resurrection from the dead, and their Bible was only the five books of, of Moses, the Torah, the first five books. So Paul's statement was not only shrewd, but notice what Paul is saying. He's pointing to the hope of the resurrection. And if Paul had a chance to speak, he would say, listen, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He is the resurrection and the life. So he didn't have that chance. But look what Paul's doing. He's not necessarily taking sides per se, but he's speaking toward the truth of the gospel. And the Sadducees didn't want to hear the gospel. Neither did the Pharisees. But there is spirit. There is a resurrection. There is a Messiah. There is the Old Testament law and, and all of the Old Testament. So he was kind of moving in that direction. But Paul sets this in motion and then there's anger toward one another. And it reminded me that, you know, you don't have to answer every question. You don't have to answer every question that people ask you. Sometimes people will genuinely try to pull you in, not because it's good for you, but it's good for them. You don't always have to put yourself out in every single circumstance God is not saying, listen, trust me and then leave your brain at home. You know, he used some wisdom here. Jesus did not answer every question that was given to him. Jesus oftentimes redirected questions or answered the question with the question. Right? Some people are trying to trick you and hurt you and harm you. Matthew 7. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. A lot of people want to quote Matthew in the beginning of that chapter to talk about don't judge. Jesus says judge. If they're trying to harm you, don't throw your pearls before swine. So be smart. Think through it. Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as what? Serpents. Innocent as doves. 
Well, dissension, verse 10. People are not happy. They're like, yo, let's get Paul out of here. They're going to rip his arms and his legs off of him. And look at the intervention, verse 23. uh, Verse 12, excuse me, chapter 23, in Paul's intervention. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul. And he said, Paul, take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat or drink until Paul was dead. Verse 13 of chapter 23. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, listen, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to us as though you were going to determine his case more accurately. And when he comes out, we'll kill him before he comes near. Verse 16. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. He went, went to the barracks and he told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, listen, take this young man to the tribune. There's something he wants to tell him. So he took him and he brought him to the tribune and he said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as something to tell you. So the tribune took him by the hand and going aside and asked him privately, what is it you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though, as, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of the men are lying in ambush for him. And, and we have bound, they have bound themselves by an oath, neither eat or drink, till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. What, what I want us to see is God's providence. God's care for Paul. He said, you are going to Rome. You will testify of the facts of of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You are going to Rome. You're not going on vacation there. It's not a vacation. I know Paul's probably thinking, I hope I get better treatment when I get there than here, I'm sure. But either way, I'm going to be faithful to the gospel. And notice Jesus doesn't say, listen, Paul, you've done a good job. You've gotten several beatings. You are, uh, you're tired. You, you, you're older, and um, just retire. Just, just grab some golf clubs, hit the course, relax. You're done. He doesn't tell him that. He says, I've called you to be my witness. You will be my witness. You're here, Jerusalem. You're going to Rome, and you're going to continue to be my witness until I take you home. That's what he tells Paul. Folks, I'm not down on retirement. Believe it or not, I'm retired. You'll never know it, but I am. But let me encourage you. Never, ever, ever does the scripture teach us that we are to sit back and let everyone else go to hell because we are retired and we're done proclaiming and witnessing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I understand different phases of life. You're a different place. Different, I, I get all that. I do. I do. And some of you are thinking, man, I'm 26. What it, well, put that in your head. Because when you get to my age and you're on Facebook and you see everybody's retired with you, and all they do is fish, drink beer, and hang out at the ocean every day. You're thinking, hmm, life of ease. I'll have my ease. There'll be no more witnesses in glory. They won't have their ease because if they reject Christ, is eternal damnation. We're never just to throw our hands up and go, we're done. We're always to be witnessing. We're always to be loving people. We're always supposed to be drawing people into our homes, into our families, into our church. We're always supposed to be declaring the good news of Jesus no matter how old you are, 20, 120. Never stop living on mission as missionaries wherever you are. Whatever you're doing, whatever age you're at, whatever place in life you're at, whatever job you're at, whatever job you retired from, it never, ever ends. God gets glory, you get joy. Paul, the next morning... Awake, uh, 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 finds out about this plot and his, ne- this ne- his nephew comes in. Like, nephew? Did you just read? Nowhere in Scripture is talk about Paul's family but here. So he's got a sister and he's got a nephew. Uh, it's like, he just shows up. And he, and, he, and he spoils the plot. And you've got to think for a minute, what did Paul really do? Forty men, at least, we're not eating nothing until he's dead. Right? We want him dead. I do that good, don't I? Don't eat, don't drink, dead, dead, dead. Like, really? The guy didn't do anything. He's a little short guy who's just telling everybody about Jesus. Well, they hated Jesus. They hated Paul. They hated Stephen. They hate you. 
They hate people around the world. I mean, what's going on is an atrocity. Murdering babies and children and people who won't convert in the name of God, small g, because it's demonic. It's crazy. We need to pray. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters all over the world that they would have the courage and strength to stand firm in Christ. But one thing we should not be is surprised. It should not shock us when we turn the television on. It should horrify us. It should anger us. If it doesn't anger, you're dead. You're not, you, you, got no, you got no heart. But it shouldn't surprise us. They hated Jesus. They hate his message. And they're going to hate us. And they're going to hate Paul. But you know what's striking here is Paul's going to get out of it. But if you go back to Acts 6 and you see Stephen, who is brought before the council, who is told you could speak, he does speak like Paul, and yet he's stoned to death. Did, did, does, does, Paul, does God love Paul more, more? Does God love Paul more than he does Stephen? Did Stephen's murder happen during God's nap time? Uh, was that mob so angry in, in, in Stephen's day that God was like, I, there's nothing I can do? Uh, obviously not. You know, from one perspective, one could say that it was just the fate of two men. From another perspective, is God fulfilling his promises for Paul, who told him, you're going to Rome. You're going to Rome. Listen, the eyes of unbelief says what is happening is just a prisoner who's being protected, but the eyes of faith say no. What's really happened is God is fulfilling, accomplishing from all eternity his plans and purposes for Paul so that Paul will go to Rome so that every tongue, every nation, every tribe will hear the gospel and respond in faith. That's what's happening. And as Christians, I think it's important that we see the world and the things happening as the unfolding plans and purposes of Almighty God. It's not just history. It's his story. A good, proper, and biblical understanding of of all that takes place and the unfolding that takes place, past, present, and future, is in the framework of God's sovereignty over his creation. Things may seem totally out of control. They are not. They are not. If we view the world with just a, 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 a kind of, well, someone has good luck or not good luck, some, some fate of one and fate of another, listen, we're going to be distracted from the mission, and even the most cheerful person won't want to get out of bed after a while. Just look at the news. There's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance. All of life is under the sovereign hand of God. God has the power. God has the right. God has the authority to govern all things according to his holy and good purposes. And the way that God works all of history out for his holy and wise good purposes is what's called providence. It's the providence, how he manages, he provides, he preserves his creation, working things out for his holy purposes and his plans always done for his glory and our good so this narrative doesn't really have a lot to say about biblical doctrine or exhortation or commands but it illustrates what scripture clearly teaches paul you're going to rome how you get there i'll orchestrate it because i made a promise to you i have a plan and a purpose for your life and you're going and the rest of the story is how god's working that out and what we learn from this story is that even though we have opposition to our faith, we have opposition for the preaching and the declaration of the gospel, we have opposition when we live on mission, nobody's exempt from trials and tribulations and difficulties. No matter what a very rich man with a giant smile and perfect teeth tells you. Scripture tells us that there's times where we will have trials. There are times we will have opposition. So when you attempt to step out in faith, there will be opposition. And you know what's scary? According to this text, sometimes, sometimes it's not who you think it may be. Sometimes it's religious people. Sometimes it's religious people. They had 40 religious men trying to kill Paul. Sometimes people join religion, join churches for their own glory, for their own fame, and want to do whatever they want to do, and they're not really looking out for people. They're serving their own selfish glory, purposes, loving and recognizing uh, uh, their own selves, not for the glory of God, or for the love of people. Next, we see that God's, God's going to protect and provide for you, as he will for me. Sometimes it may be martyrdom. We see that Paul's going to die a couple of years later. He's martyred. 
Stephen Martin, Peter Martin, thousands of people around the world over, over, over 2,000 years have been martyred. Some plans and purposes of God for us to, to move forward and preach, some plans and purposes for God is to, our lives ended. Look what King David said, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, in contempt. So although they tried to kill Paul, God's plan was not going to be thwarted. God's plan was not going to be thwarted. You know, Isaiah says, no weapon that is formed against us will prosper. No weapon against us will, formed against us will prosper. That, folks, listen, with everything going on in our world, we should take comfort in that. Providence and sovereignty is not something that's just theological, it's practical. We should rest in the reality and the truth that God's in control, that no matter what happens, his plans and purposes for your life will not be thwarted because of stupid, evil people, period. The Bible declares that he is directing even evil events, evil people in such a way to accomplish his sovereign will, and yet he's not the author of evil, there is no darkness in him, and yet he is not responsible for evil. We are, but he is sovereign and in control of the universe, Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained the inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's that, that simple. It's that simple. Scripture declares God sovereign over human affairs. He determines existence and boundaries of all nations, Acts 17. He sets up rulers. He takes them down, Daniel 7. He governs all our lives, Jeremiah 10. Even the days that we have are numbered, Psalm 139. So that should comfort us. It's not by chance, it's not by accident, God's not sleeping. You know that when bad things happen to you or to your loved one, it's not about luck, it's not about faith. It's not that, oh, we're just, God is sovereign, but you know, we do have a free will, and God somehow doesn't, doesn't work together with that. Don't believe that lie. Do not believe that lie. God has revealed himself in such a way that evil events are under God's sovereign control and providence so that we know that he can and he will work all things together for those for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Even stupid, sinful, wicked people will stand before judgment and God will make all the things wrong right. All the injustices will be justified. Everything will be made right. God has not sleeping. God is not, uh, uh, this world is not out of his control. And we should take comfort in that. Evil men, even here we see in this plan, were inadvertently carrying out the plans and purpose of God. And they will stand in judgment. Let me, before I move on, let me say one thing. Pilate said to Jesus, John, it's in John, the Gospel of John. Pilate said to Jesus, do you know, Jesus of Nazareth, do you know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? Your life is in my hands. I could do what I want with you, Jesus. No, Jesus said, you have no authority over me. You have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you by my Father. God's in control. Now, we won't spend a lot of time on this last point, I promise you. Deportation. Verses 23 through the end. Let me just tell you, Claudius Lysias, the tribune, he's like, listen, we've got to get Paul out of here. And then he sends him to Caesarea. It's like 9 o'clock at night. He's got this big army, and he takes Paul to Caesarea. They get halfway there. They're like, look, we're out of danger. They send on the horsemen with Paul. Everybody else goes back to Jerusalem. Paul's delivered to Caesarea to the governor, Felix. Okay, that's what's happened here. And I, I worked in the facilities before, as many of you know. I was in the Department of Corrections. Sometimes in the middle of the night, you've got to move people. That's exactly what's happening here. Listen, things are getting out of hand. There's going to be a riot. Let's back the bus up, middle of the night, protect them, protect us. Let's get Paul out of here. And they get him out of there. And Paul stands before Caesarea, in Caesarea to the Felix, the governor. And look what he says. Um, here's the letter, verse 26. Let's just read that to you. So Claudius Lysias sends Paul to Caesarea to sit under Felix. We'll talk about him next week. He's the governor. And he sends him a letter. Here's Paul, Caesarea under Felix, the governor. He writes, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man, Paul, was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Just notice he doesn't say anything about being flogged. 
I'm not going to tell Matt Parkas that will save, you know, that will cost me my neck. So we won't talk about flogging. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the council. I found that he's being accused about some question of the law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Verse 30. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against him, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Now, let me, who's this letter written to? Who's, who is, excuse me, who is the book of Acts written to? Do you remember? His name is Theophilus. The Gospel according to Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus. What you see here, what you see here, Luke is very careful in all of Acts to show that Paul was not revolting against the government. Over and over and over, Luke is pointing out Paul is innocent, Paul is innocent. No one can find charges. So as he's writing to Theophilus, who is a Roman uh, uh, aristocrat, a Roman authority, and, and he's reading this book called Acts, he's seeing, and Luke, he's seeing over and over that Paul was innocent, trying to show that Christianity is not revolting against the government. It's not about taking over government. It's about a person. His name is Jesus. Paul was deported for his protection. The nephew spoke. The soldiers followed orders. The trip was successful. The plot was thwarted. The man is standing now before Caesarea because God was in that all. Amen? All right, let's close in verse 11. Just give me two more minutes, okay? Look at verse 11 with me again, please. The following night, Paul is still back in Jerusalem. The Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me, you will testify in Rome. Now listen, Paul was told to take courage because Paul needed courage. Paul's not Superman. He was probably confused. He probably was concerned. He might have been downright discouraged. And God in his grace comes to him at night, appears to Paul, and gives him encouragement. He's not saying you're going to be released. He's not saying you're not going to suffer. He's not saying there's not going to be some injustice. What he's saying is you're going to Rome, take courage, and look what it says. The Lord stood by him. The Lord stood by him. Some people would be like, ah, I need a little more than that. Can you, can you get me out of here? Can, can, can you release me? Paul's greatest joy, Paul's greatest treasure was Christ and living on mission. And Christ, working in Paul, wanted to declare the greatest joy, the greatest treasure of Christ to others. That was his primacy. That's exactly what he wanted to do. So that was great encouragement. But let me ask you, is that all it was? God, you're sovereign. God, you're good. Nothing can happen to me that does not come through your sovereign hand for your glory and my good. So I'm going to suck it up. Is that all there is? It's true, but is there more? I think so. Look at this. What Paul came to see, I want you to catch this. And, and what Paul came to see, what you and I need so desperately to press into our lives that the only way God was able to stand with Paul is because he first stood for him. When you look at the cross and you see the crucifixion, you see Golgotha, you see Calvary, you see the greatest evil, the most vilest attack against the most innocent victim who then died in our place. Standing in the face of the wrath of the Father, standing for us, for you and I, where you and I should be, and then using that evil event, that evil act to bring us to the Father, to, to give us our salvation, to allow us to be forgiven of our sins. When you see that, then and only then can we take courage and we speak and the assurance of Christ is standing with us. Listen, Christ was able to stand with Paul because Christ first stood for him. He died in his place. He died for his sins as his substitute. He suffered the punishment due to Paul and he stood and divine justice was accepted, payment for his sins in full. So he was able to stand with Paul because he first stood in front of Paul and absorbed the wrath of the Father for his deliverance and sin. And that's why Paul was able to write in Romans. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up in our place for us all? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring us against the charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, was raised at the right hand of the Father. And he intercedes for us. Shall se- what shall separate us from his love? Tribulation? Roman cohorts? The tribune? The Jewish leaders? The Roman government? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything present, nor things, the powers to come, height, nor death, anything in all creation, will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul knew that. And Paul was able to stand in the face of opposition, take courage, because the Lord who stood in front of him was standing beside him and encouraging him. Consider this as we close. The greatest sin that has ever been and ever will be committed in this world was orchestrated by the Father so that you will never be alone. So you will never be separated from His love. So go on speaking. Go on sharing. Go on taking opposition against us. Go on testifying to the work in the person of Jesus Christ because that promise that He will stand with you because he stood in front of you, applies to every single Christian in this universe. That's the promise. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this terrific, wonderful news. Thank you, Lord. And we don't, we don't want to take away from the Apostle Paul, from his courage, from his strength that he's shown. But Lord, you are the hero of this story. You are the one, Father God, who's in sovereign control of the universe. We see brokenness, we see evil, we see wickedness happening in the world. But Father, we know that you are sovereign, that in your providence you are moving all of history according to your wise and holy plans for your glory and our good. And in the midst of chaos, in the midst of brokenness, we take comfort in that, knowing, God, that everything that has been broken will be made right, that all the injustices of the world will be made right. Every sin will be punished. Every wickedness will be accounted for. Father, we thank you that even our own sin and wickedness will be accounted for. It was taken on Jesus, who died in our place, who took your wrath against sin so that we may be forgiven, loved, and brought into sweet fellowship, reconciliation with you. Father, we pray. Lord, for those who may not know you here would see Christ, his glory, his goodness, his cross his resurrection, and turn from their sins and trust him, Lord. Father, I pray for those who already know you. We will not get caught up in in the brokenness of the world as if we don't have hope. We'll have hope in you. We'll trust in you. And Lord, we will keep speaking because, Lord, you are standing with us because you already stood in front of us, we pray in Jesus' name.